Well, Romans chapter 14, we jump in. We're, we're looking at verse 13 is where we left off. And that was two weeks ago. Last week, we had the plague here in this house, felt like. And so, uh, yeah, everybody else, amen, right? Like everybody felt it. That's kind of what happened. <clears throat> but we skipped last week, but here we are. Romans 14, verse 13. Let's go ahead and read through. We'll just start reading and, and then I'll stop when I think I need to talk. Therefore... Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We'll stop there. Anytime Paul says brother and he's talking to the church, we know he means brother and sister, meaning everybody in the church. He's addressing everyone in this way. Therefore, he says, let us not pass judgment on one another. Why does he say, therefore? What, what, what is this statement being made for? It's always a result of the verse that was right above it. What's the previous verse? What's the previous thing that Paul said? Well, if you look at verse 10, Paul asks the question hypothetically. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Meaning those of you in the church, why are you judging each other? Why are you being so Let's just be really simple about it. Why are you being so mean to each other? Why are you being so rude to each other in terms of the fellowship that you're supposed to have? Paul's been talking about, and he's leading into this last part of his letter to the Romans, he's going to be emphasizing unity in the church. He's gone through 12, 13 chapters uh, of doctrine, deep understanding of mankind's condition of sinfulness, our our lack of ability to save ourselves, our need for... Uh, uh, Salvation through a mediator between us and God, who is Jesus Christ, talks about how salvation is accomplished through God's will and God's will alone. And so he's done all of this great doctrinal teaching so that the church at Rome understands what our salvation is, like what it's about, what it's based on, how it works. And then he says, after all of these things, he starts preaching to them and talking to them, encouraging them and exhorting them to be unified. Now we're going to move through the rest of Romans here and get into 1 Corinthians pretty soon. And what you'll see throughout the epistles uh, of the New Testament as Paul talks to the different churches, Ephesus, Galatia, Thessalonica, all these other places, Philippi, often the, the reason that he's writing a letter is because it's an answer to questions that have been asked to him as the one who has founded those churches, sort of the, the, the lead elder of those churches, if you will, and, and Paul is often answering questions or issues regarding conflicts within the church. Okay, And so here in, in, in the letter to the Romans, again, where he hasn't been yet, he's imploring them to be unified in the body of Christ. And so we go on, it says in verse the second half of verse uh, 10, For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, verse 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Because this is true, that every person in all of creation will stand before the creator of heaven and earth, the master of the universe. Everyone's going to stand before him. Because that is true, Paul says, let us no longer pass judgment on one another any longer. Why? Because we need to be worried about ourselves. <laughs> That's the issue that Paul's talking about. Rather than you trying to poke your fingers and call out everybody else for all of their issues, you got enough things to be concerned with on your own. 
And so he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment any longer. Uh, pardon me. Pass judgment one another on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. Now let's think about that for a moment. Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance, a barrier, something that's going to trip up one of our fellow Christians, one of our brothers and sisters. Now, this is a section of scripture like many are in Paul's writings. Remember that Peter, in his writings, in his letter, would say that our brother Paul says some hard things, some hard things to understand. And so oftentimes people can read through Paul's writings and get uh, a little bit disoriented or confused. And this is one of those sections where we have to make sure that we're not missing out on the heart and the intent of what Paul is teaching the church. I want you to remember... Uh, Chapter 14, verse 5, for a moment. I'll read it to you. Paul says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's the principle that Paul is taking and expounding upon as he teaches this idea of not putting a hindrance in front of our brother or sister in Christ. That when we're in fellowship with one another, man, we need to be convinced ourselves of what is sinful and what is righteous, okay? And there's a caution implied here that the way that we see it often happen culturally for us is that churches become very comfortable in what they practice and they start to create for themselves almost a new Ten Commandments, right? knowing that they've been saved, knowing that they believe upon Jesus, all those things, but still wanting to do what the Jews asked for. Just give us a list of rules. Just tell us the things that are good, tell us the things that are bad, and we'll do our best to please you, God, morally. We'll try and just act and behave in a way that you say is right, foregoing or forgetting that that's impossible to do. Apart from Christ and his righteousness imputed to us, it, there's no amount of good behavior that can save us. We know that. We repeat that. We hear that a ton in Bible teaching. And yet that's something we have to be uh, reminded of over and over and over again. And so we, of course, want to hold ourselves in the church to Christ-like expectation of holiness in our lives. We're called to that holiness in Scripture. But we also have to understand that's being in the sinful state of the flesh that we are and the nature of God's grace toward us in Jesus' death and resurrection. We have to live in that knowledge that it's by grace we are saved through our faith, right? By grace we are saved through our faith. And far too often we want the list. What's on the nice list? What's on the naughty list? And if someone is doing something that is on my personal or my church's congregational naughty list, I or we get to judge that person. And, and here's the problem. Without grace, according to my standards, regardless of whether God has specific moral judgments against those behaviors or not, we all know these things, that there are certain behaviors that we see in, in humanity that we look at and go, that's worse behavior than that. We have to understand that all sin is sin. Sin is incredibly serious to God. 
from the smallest sin, the things that we would judge as small sins, sins that perhaps don't necessarily inflict pain on someone else, right? We'll, we look at a sin and just go, that's a small sin, that's a medium sin, that's a big sin. The Catholic Church does this in, in talking about uh, mortal sins or venial sins, right? But the, there's, there's no levels of sin. T to God, sin is sin. You know, one of the ways that I, that I see this in my mind, you know, we see sin like a, like a bar graph, right? Like we see it, we see it uh, uh, horizontally and, and go, well, there's this sin and then there's this sin and then there's this sin. When in the reality is that God looks down on creation and just sees a blanket of sin over everything. There's no topography to it. It's all unrighteousness. It's all what put Christ on the cross. And so we have to be so, so cautious in how we read and, and, and judge other people's behaviors. Now we are called, we'll see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, man, we are called to judge those who are in the church according to what we know of scripture, that scripture just says, this is sin. When, when people say, oh, you can't judge me or, you know, you're not supposed to judge, you know, other people. Well, yeah, we are. We're supposed to judge other believers, those who are in the faith. We're supposed to judge one another and exhort one another unto holiness. That's what we do for each other. Now, often as we read through the scripture, back to our text here in Romans 14, one of the things we have to do when we're reading larger sections of scripture is find the, the center point of a passage or a, or a topic like and, and go, okay, these verses, verse 13 through 23, that's sort of broken up into its own section here by the editors of the Bible, but, but you can see that there's a natural flow here. And so we got to say, well, what's the central message of this section of scripture? And then what else is supporting that idea? What's the crux? What's the central message? Well, what I want you to do in, ver in chapter 14 is I want you to look at verse 19. Verse 19 is the central thrust, the, the main teaching point of the Apostle Paul of this whole passage. Verses 13 through 23. Verse 19 right there in the middle is sort of the central point. Take a look at what it says. Paul says, so then... Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is Paul's call again. He, he's stating this almost as a thesis statement to the rest of his letter to the Romans as he comes to the conclusion of his letter. He wants to say, listen, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Here's what we're supposed to be doing as the body of Christ. Pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, Central thrust of this section. And what he's saying is that let us, the church as a whole, collectively, but also individually, pursue what makes for peace and mutual, mutual, mutual building up. So take note of a couple things about these two ideas. Peace and mutual upbuilding or building up. Mutual building up. How do we do that? How do we build up the body of Christ? Well, again, we'll, we'll be there in 1 Corinthians in a while. But God has given us gifts through the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work of building up the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each one for the common good. 
That idea of the common good of the church is this very thing that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 14. Mutual upbuilding. The common good. Another word that gets used in the New Testament is edification. The edification of other believers. And that word edification specifically has in its original uh, language the, the idea of architecture. That the body of Christ is like a building that's being built up. It's got a foundation. The foundation is Jesus. And then we are all the different parts that build up this building. See, there's all kinds of imagery in the Bible. We've learned a lot about the body of Christ as a body, right? A hand, a foot, a mouth, an ear, all those kinds of things. But when we talk about edification, the building up of the church, it's the idea of this interconnected, solid structure based on the foundation of Jesus Christ, this idea of architecture. And so how do we build one another up in the church? It's by using, exercising the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. And when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's one of those things that you just pray through. Now, a lot of scholars think that that list isn't conclusive, meaning it's not complete. That there's perhaps other giftings that become apparent through people's personalities or in different ways that God uses them in life. But at the very least, we can read through 1 Corinthians 12 and just prayerfully say, Lord, open my eyes. What is, what is the gifting that you have given me within the body of Christ? Romans chapter 12 also talks about the gifts of grace that God has given. You go, am I someone who just encourages people? Like that's my whole purpose is when I'm in the body of Christ, the way that, that I build up the church, is I just sort of slap people on the back and just go, how's it going? And man, you're doing a great job. And can I pray for you? And, and you're just an encourager. Maybe you're one that God has just gifted by his grace to be someone who's generous and he's provided just resources to that you just give. And it's not even a thing for you. You don't even worry about it. You just give because that's what's on your heart. Maybe you're someone that the Holy Spirit, Spirit works through to speak prophetically into someone's life. To go, man, this is what God is saying right now. Remember what his word said here? That's what he's saying to you right now. Maybe that's how the Holy Spirit moves through you. So that's how we mutually build one another up is through the, the working of the Holy Spirit. Now remember also that Paul is talking about those who are weak in the faith in this regard and others. Now, a couple weeks ago, I said that it wasn't a direct comparison between weak and strong, good versus bad, that kind of a thing. But Paul does use the language of saying weak, and then later on, he says those of us who are strong. So those words are at play in this section of scripture. But the whole idea uh, out of verse 19 is that both sides, both parties, whether you're weak in the faith, young in the faith, lacking experience or exposure or knowledge of God's word, when you're saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit will give you gifts to use. There's no like waiting period to go, I was saved at this age and at this point in my life. And then, you know, six months later or six years later or 60 years later, God finally said, now you've gotten to a point where I can now move through the Holy Spirit to give you a gift of some kind. That's not how it works. It's just not. There's evidence in the scripture of people who are saved right away, and all of a sudden, God is using them to minister his gospel to people. I'll just, if you guys haven't talked to Matt Hamilton and heard his story, I mean, Jen can attest to this, she was there. Like, he got saved one week, right, over Christmas break, I think it was, his sophomore year of college. He's 19 years old. The next week, he's like teaching other people about getting saved and what it means. Now, 
he didn't know a whole lot other than he knew Jesus and he knew that he had been saved. His life had been changed. And here he is telling other people about it. It's just an awesome story. And he tells it better than I can. But whether you're weak in the faith or you're strong in the faith, mature, you've been around, you understand theology and scripture, man, the Holy Spirit will work through you to accomplish this mutual building up. The responsibility that we have, regardless of weakness or strength, is that we build up the body of Christ. The second thing that Paul talks about in verse 19 there, this main idea of this section, mutual building up, and whatever makes for peace. The goal of peace here implies this idea of unity. And this is the idea that, like I said before, Paul finishes his letter to the Romans emphasizing this, the idea of unity. After all the accurate doctrine is taught, there must be unity in the church. Now, this leads to a couple of different ideas when we think about unity and being unified with other people. Does that mean that we have to agree on everything? Or are there moments in our faith, in our relationship to each other in the church, where we might have to agree to disagree about certain things? And this is the way that we can begin to think about that idea. There are certain we'll call them essential doctrines, essential teachings of Scripture that we have to be unified on. That if we're not unified on them, then it signals to us that there is a difference in understanding of salvation, actual knowledge of who Jesus is. These, some of these things that we have to be really sure about are things like the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God which leads to that further understanding of what we call the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Holy Spirit. And so the deity of Jesus is an essential doctrine. Man, if you are a person who's wanting to go to a Christian church and be a part of a church and be a part of everything that's going on, but you don't believe that Jesus is God, that he was just a prophet or a good teacher or whatever it is, then you don't actually know who Jesus is. And even though you may believe in him and the idea of salvation through him, if you don't believe that Jesus is God at all times, you haven't believed in the Jesus that the Bible talks about. You've created a different Jesus for yourself. Now that becomes a really, really hard conversation when there's people that you may know who are lovely people and who seem to have all the evidence of faith and good works in their life. But if they don't believe that to be true, that Jesus is God, then they're not believing in the Jesus that the Bible talks about. That's an essential doctrine. Some of the other essential doctrines that, that, that are important for us to hold to and understand, penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ sacrificed himself, God's wrath being poured out upon the Son on the cross on our behalf, that he was the substitute for the punishment that we're supposed to receive for our sin essential doctrine. If, if you don't believe in penal substitutionary atonement, again, you're not believing in the Jesus that scripture speaks of. You're not believing in Isaiah 53. You're not believing in what all the prophets talked about in terms of the fulfillment of this sacrificial lamb that God would then forgive our sins through. So there's all kinds of doctrines. There's, there's uh, several other critical teachings. One of the things you can do is on the website, there is a What We Believe uh, page on the website, and it's just our beliefs. It's a pretty extensive document. 
But it goes through things that for us are essential. Things that, man, we have to be unified and believe these things to really be on mission together and really say, no, we're of the same heart, of the same mind of these issues. So I'd encourage you to read that if you're trying to fall asleep or if you just uh, you know are interested in some of those deeper things. But in this idea of agreeing about everything, there are certain things in Scripture that are based on this idea that Paul said in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. There's a number of things in Scripture that are not uh, dogmatic. They don't require our obedience to, meaning they are an idea that we can go, oh, I think this is what that means. And someone else may go, no, I think it means this. And where the Scripture might not come down on a hard, solid answer on it, we might have to go, well, we might just have to agree to disagree on that point. Now, there's too many topics there to, 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 to really talk about convincingly and, and, and accurately represent what those things are, but suffice it to say that that, that is a, that is a uh, interaction with others in the body of Christ that is easier said than done because of one issue, and it's this, our personalities. That's the thing that gets in the way of us being unified about things that we could disagree on in scripture and still be in fellowship with. Our personalities get in the way. And here's, I can just speak from personal experience and opinion on this one. Some have the personality that when we're convicted of something, when we believe something to be true and we see it in scripture, man, we think it's our job to convict everybody else of the exact same thing and convince everybody to say, no, 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 no. This is what the scripture says. It's really clear to me. Therefore, it needs to be clear to you as well. And yet then there's others who, to their never-ending credit, God bless them, simply say, hey, here's what I'm convicted of. If you're not, cool. Let's still be unified in our love for and our obedience to Jesus. God bless those people. They are miraculous. That's God's grace being poured out in ways that maybe I have never experienced at this point. But the thing we can be sure of is that regardless of those personality traits or flaws, those things that we might agree to disagree on, the purpose of the body of Christ here, as Paul talks about it, is to work towards peace and unity in the church. Be sure of this, though. Pursuing peace and unity never means throwing out or diminishing those critical or essential doctrines. It never means compromising on things that the Bible is really clear about, that you cannot be saved unless you've placed your faith upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Impossible. There's no other way. It's abundantly clear that we can hold fast to, and we have to agree on to have that peace and that unity. Now, in those things, those discussions that that take place, there's a balancing act that Jesus modeled perfectly, as obviously he modeled everything perfectly for us. Jesus models for us in his interactions with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, with people who were in need of healing, that he would maintain truth and fidelity to the Father, and at the same time, he would graciously and peacefully and intensely love people. That's that balancing act that Jesus models for us so well, and that we should always have an eye toward to go, man, how did Jesus deal with this conflict, when they were trying to trap him in his language, when they were trying to get him to say something that they could accuse him for, 
How is it that Jesus just navigated those situations, maintaining truth, but still being gracious and, and even exhibiting like real intense love for people? So that's the central thrust of this section. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Go back to verse 13 and let's see the, the verses on either side of 19 and how they work together to support that main idea. Verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Stop real quick. Paul used to be a Jew, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin. He would give his resume after his salvation and go, I was as zealous as it got for the law. Paul knew the law. He knew all the sacrificial laws. He knew all the health laws. He knew all the food laws. He was a good Jewish boy. But here, being born again in Jesus Christ, Paul says, I'm persuaded and I know that nothing is unclean in itself. It's just a thing. It's not unclean. But, he says in verse 14, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Interesting idea. Let each one be convinced in their own mind. He goes on in verse 15 and says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. <clears throat> so, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul's laying out a pretty big idea here. <clears throat> An idea that says, man, somebody may have a different idea than you do. You may have, we'll add this word to the text because this is the meaning here, you may have liberty in your Christian life, in your faith. You may understand that meat that was sacrificed to an idol is just meat. It doesn't actually mean anything. You could eat it and give thanks to God and be completely acceptable because there is no conviction that, that it was about worshiping a false god or a false idol. And yet the one, like we talked about two weeks ago, to whom maybe that was their previous pagan life, that, that the God that that meat had been sacrificed to in the temple of that God and then sold in the marketplace, that was like a conviction for that person that goes, wait a minute, I used to worship that false God. And now that I know who Jesus is, I can't go back to that life. I can't go back to eating that meat. It would be an abomination to me and I can't worship God that way. Let that person be convicted in their own mind, to their own self, that if they're convicted that that's sin, then it's sin for them. And what Paul says is that we should never do anything that would cause that person to be grieved by what we have in our liberty, by what we eat. Now, this, this is perhaps a little bit of a hard context for, under, for us to understand because we don't necessarily have that whole idol worship thing and, and sacrifices going on in the same way. And so it, it's a little bit of a, of a hard context for us to understand. But it's easy if we stop and take something that is 
perhaps taboo within the church as a whole, or can be taboo depending on where you are, and, and use that as an example. And I'll just use this one because this one tends to resonate because it's a very current issue, but the issue of drinking alcohol, partaking of an alcoholic beverage, beer, wine, whatever it might be. Jesus's first miracle at the wedding of Cana was turning water into wine. It wasn't watered down grape juice or watered down form of wine. It was robust, the best of the best. That was Jesus's first miracle. Jesus at the Last Supper drank wine. In fact, the cup, the chalice, the, the drink that is offered in communion, we do grape juice now not to be offensive to those who would have a problem with that. But the whole idea in the history of the church is, is that it was wine that represented the blood of Jesus. Paul would tell his young protege, Timothy, hey, Timothy, for medicinal purposes even, take a little bit of wine for your stomach, right? There's no prohibition in the New Testament about drinking wine or, or any type of alcoholic beverage. Now, before we get too far, there is a definite and exacting prohibition in the manner in which we drink. It's very clear in the New Testament that for those of us who are in Christ, we are called not to get drunk. Now, people want to start splitting hairs about, about what that means as well. But anytime there's a reference to that idea of drunkenness uh, or, or the idea would be being mastered by something, and it's true of, of, of anything, the New Testament is abundantly clear on this, you can be mastered by drink. You can be mastered by food. That's why we're called not to be gluttonous. We can be mastered by sex and sexual temptation. We can be mastered by money by relationships, by anything that takes our affection away from Jesus and places it on something else. In a practical sense, man, relationships, marriage, spouses can become idols. We can, we can overindulge in those relationships by putting that person ahead of Jesus. And so it's really clear throughout Scripture that there's an, that, that what is being taught is that we're not to be mastered by anything. And the, the same is true about alcoholic drink. Now, this passage, as Paul's talking about this, about this whole idea, and that he's using that context of meat sacrifice to idols, he's telling us that if our liberty as a Christian, remember, he says, I know, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Meat that's been sacrificed to idols, meat that was a part of the prohibitions of the food laws that God gave to the nation of Israel, pork and so on, drinking alcohol, whatever, whatever you want to apply it to, everything's clean in itself in this legal sense. But what he's telling us is that if it gets in the way, our liberty, if it gets in the way of another Christian's pursuit of Jesus, then it is on us. It's incumbent, meaning it should be built into our heart and to our mind that we don't want to pursue any activity that might stumble a brother or sister in their faith. We don't want them to be grieved by our behavior. And so, if someone has liberty to drink an alcoholic beverage without sinning, to finish that whole idea, if they have that liberty and yet that presents a stumbling block to another brother or sister in their faith, then we should willingly choose, Paul would say later on in 1 Corinthians, to never do that activity again if that's what's necessary to help build up our brother or sister in faith. Paul said if someone's weak in that and, and, the, and meat sacrifice to the idols is an issue to them, I think it's 1 Corinthians 8, 
He says, I'll never eat meat again. He's like, I'll go vegetarian. Like, that's a bridge too far. Sorry, man. Like, let them figure it out on their own. Like, I'm not giving up. Well, Paul says, I'll give up meat sacrifice to idols, even though I have liberty in that. And I know it's not a thing. If it's for the purpose of building up my brother and sister in Christ, that I would give that stuff up. Now, when we think about this subject, we have to think about it holistically in this sense. How do, we, how do we know what it is that it would cause a stumbling block to people? And see, that's where people start to become almost pharisaical, right? Pharisaical. They start making lists of things and go, well, these are the things that would probably stumble a brother or sister in Christ. Or these are the things that culturally we just agree upon in this little group of Christians that that's not right. You shouldn't do that. And then they, they make that an expectation or, or a cultural norm within their fellowship so that it becomes almost a law. And what they don't take into consideration is the opposite, that there are others who have liberty, who are convinced in their own mind, like Paul said in verse 5, that that issue isn't sin. There would have to be an agreement to disagree on those things and still look for opportunity to build each other up. <clears throat> If someone is just looking to be judgy and, and holier than thou and, and look down on another person's liberty in Christ, the truth is they're guilty of hypocrisy, just like the Pharisees. See, I've had conversations with people where, where in truth, they weren't really offended by someone else's actions. They weren't really uh, offended or, or stumbled in their faith. But because culturally they didn't like the behaviors of another person or the conviction of another person, they would use this as, as sort of this like this uh, weaponized version of scripture to go, see, that's a stumbling block to my faith. And so you can't do that. When they're not really stumbled in their faith, my behavior didn't really affect them in that way. But they're becoming a Pharisee in their hypocrisy, because while that issue, whether it's drinking alcohol or anything else, was an issue for them, they don't address other issues in their life that seem to get a pass, degrees of sin, right? In the sin, some reason drinking and smoking are worse sins than gossips or liars. And yet, within the church, gossiping is far more rampant than almost any other sin. And so here's what happens. Jesus would talk to the Pharisees and he would say that the Pharisees, man, he said that you guys, you guys tithe to the, to the penny, to the cent of all of your produce, your, your mint and your herbs and, and all of those things. You, you, you tithe to the nth degree of legalism, but Jesus would say that you Pharisees ignore the weightier matters of the law. Yeah, the tithe and how we did those things, that was part of the law too. But Jesus would say there's issues within the law that are far more important than you giving an exacting tenth of your cumin or your spices. He would say the weightier issues of the law are things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Man, if we're not motivated by those types of things, justice, to see people cared for and for there to be a rightness in what's going on, God's kingdom here now operating in that way, Mercy, understanding people's weaknesses, understand people's need for growth and, and repentance and grace, being merciful to people and faithfulness to the things that God has convicted us of and called us to. 
then we're missing the whole thing. If all we're worried about <laughs> is behaving in a specific way that makes us feel better about our gathering, we're missing the whole thing. Now, it's imp- incredibly practical on how to do this, to, to be able to, to understand where someone might have uh, an issue that might stumble them. This requires something that, again, we don't do typically well, but it's something that we're praying for and we get to exhibit and, and practice in the smaller gathering that we have right now um, as far as what Jesus is doing through the way. And it's this. It's have conversations with people. Talk to people. Ask people questions. Be willing to be vulnerable with people. Watch people's body language. Ask them, what are they struggling with? How can I pray for you? What are the issues? You know, listen to people's stories. I was just teaching a unit on on, on, uh, conversations and how to have conversations. And I'm working with students who have real communication issues. And the number one rule of having a good conversation with people is listening. It's listening more and talking less. Asking open-ended questions, asking a question that doesn't just require a yes or no answer, right? Who, what, where, who, what, when, where, why, and how, journalistic type questioning. And then just waiting for a person to fill in the details and tell you a story. Listen to what their issues are. Listen to who they are as a person and pray for discernment to go, Lord, how can I encourage this person? How can I make sure I don't stumble this person or get in the way of their faith growing? Well, there's plenty more that we could spend time talking about that on. But I'll I'll finish with this idea that in light of that conversation of liberty and conviction and how there's a dance between those things, how we have to really discern how that works so that we don't stumble others, but we also understand the liberty that we have in Christ. We also need to understand that we shouldn't think that Paul would permit any kind of of, faith pharisaical legalism, and and he's not saying to, again, to allow someone to abuse this idea of, oh, you're stumbling me by your liberty for the sake of legalism. Paul talks about stumbling a sincere heart, someone who's truly seeking to grow closer to Jesus, not catering to the whims of someone's personal legalism. And, and, And that's where far too often church and family culture and tradition have sort of waylaid a lot of people just trying to simply follow Jesus and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. For example, this is the example that, that I can think of in Scripture. When there were some Christians from a Jewish background, um, they were offended that Gentile believers were not circumcised. There was this whole idea of Judaizers who thought, well, to become a part of the body of Christ, first you need to become Jewish and go through those conversion rites and then you can become a Christian. That's, that's what they used to think. And, and so there were those that, that brought that to Paul, and Paul absolutely just shot that down. He wouldn't cater to those legalistic demands. Rather, he would teach them the spiritual application of that Old Testament requirement to God's people, the Jews, and that the purpose of it was like the email that I wrote to everybody, Deuteronomy chapter 10. The purpose was to be a picture of physically of the circumcision of the heart, this new heart that we're supposed to have so that we can actually love God in the way that he loves us. And so Paul didn't give any quarter to someone who was trying to use this whole idea here of being stumbled in their faith for people who are seeking out legalism, okay? Now, we move on past verse 19 and look at the second half of this section. 
Paul says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is not, or but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. There it is. So that's a strong statement. Look at verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now, in our broken, twisted human minds, oftentimes we'll read a section of scripture like that, a passage, and we'll begin to play games with the concept. And we can dig ourselves a hole really quick if we're not careful. The phrase here is what he approves, right? Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. We're supposed to be convinced in our own mind, right? Verse five, isn't that what that means? That we can approve anything? This does not mean by any stretch that we get to approve of things that are in opposition to or are in contradiction with the word of God. If the Bible says that we're not to be drunk, we don't get to make an exception and say, well, it's just this once or it's a special occasion. We don't get to convince ourselves that sin is somehow okay as long as we're convinced that it's okay. It's just not allowable. Look at verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And this is that whole idea of being convinced, not being convicted in yourself that there's something wrong about this. This whole idea of faith, you know it well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for is, is the reasonable expectation of coming good. If God has said something, man, it's true. It's reasonable for us to expect that good thing that God has told us. This whole idea of, of faith, whoever has doubts, is condemned if he partakes in that thing that while technically he has liberty in, if he's convicted of it as sin, man, you can't because you're not eating from faith. You can't do that thing because you're not acting out in faith. For whoever does not, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is a wonderful check on our tendency to justify sinful tendencies to ourselves. This check. Man, if we find in our behavior toward another person, in our activities in life, the things that we partake in or don't partake in, man, if we're troubled by something, if we're conflicted about whether we're supposed to do something or not as a Jesus follower, how we're supposed to behave, those kinds of things, it likely isn't of faith and likely is a sin for us. Man, if we're struggling with something, if you're trying to make a decision about some type of behavior or activity or relationship and you're struggling with that, hey, take a step back from that. Don't dive in headlong and go, ah, oh, we'll just see what happens. If you have any doubts or struggle and you're not coming from a position of full faith to go, this is what we're supposed to do, then take a step back and search your heart and go, Lord, what is sinful in me? What about this situation is, are you convicting me of Holy Spirit? Remember, you can talk to the Holy Spirit. You can pray to the Holy Spirit specifically. Holy Spirit, there's this conviction that I feel about this issue. I don't think I'm supposed to do this, but somebody, not another Christian does. So shouldn't I too? Man, 
If you're convicted not to, if you're not in full faith, then don't. Take a step back and allow the Lord to teach you and speak to you about that issue, whatever that might be. Now, does that mean we're supposed to be 100% sure of everything we believe and have it set in stone and have it never change and never grow in our understanding, never revise our convictions where the Holy Spirit might speak to us in one season of our life about something and then it might be different as long as it's not one of those essential doctrines, essential truths of scripture. Martin Luther says this, he says, faith is the wrestle with doubt. Faith is the wrestle with doubt. Man, there'll be seasons in our life where there's something we're presented with and we just go, I'm just not sure that's right. Man, that's the moment to step back and go, Holy Spirit, teach me about this. What does that mean in my life? God, how am I supposed to address this issue? And then later in life, when presented with the same situation, having grown in maturity in the knowledge of the Lord, you just go, I'm not convicted about that thing. And I'm actually in agreement with the Christians who partake in that and have liberty in that. And, and there's a different kind of conviction that takes place. These are sort of, sort of uh, uh, esoteric and hard concepts to grab onto sometimes without going into specifics. But that issue of, of Paul talking about meat sacrifice to idols, there was surely people who in their infancy, the infancy of their faith, their youngness in the faith, that if that had been an issue for them, eating things that were sacrificed to the idols of their pagan gods that they had previously worshipped, that early in their faith, they went, I just can't do that. Surely there were people also who later in their faith grew and went, oh, I get it. All things are clean. That stuff's just an idol. It doesn't actually mean anything. I can partake of that and give glory to God and be totally okay. And later on, partake of those things. And that's totally okay. A different conviction for a different season of life. I'll say two more things. Romans chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is where Paul makes that, that delineation, where he makes that contrast to go, hey, there are those who are weak in faith, and they're the ones, the ones who are weak in faith, are the ones who have potentially that conviction to go, oh, I can't touch that thing. I can't participate in that activity. I can't listen to that song on the radio. <clears throat> totally good. Totally fine. Not understanding that, that listen, God's grace and liberty in those things and how we're convicted of those things grows and changes over time. But those of us who are strong in, in our faith to where we understand that that meat sacrifice to an idol, totally okay to eat as long as we're giving thanks to God and not worshiping that idol. Those of us who are strong in that way in regard to the liberties that we have, have an obligation. It's our job. We must bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. I said it on Sunday. But for those who didn't hear it, if you go back and listen to it, you'll catch it. Serving the Lord, walking with Jesus, being a, a Jesus follower, loving Jesus requires two things, sacrifice and service. That's the idea I want to leave you with tonight, that in our walk with the Lord, there are two things that are going to be required of us over and over again, sacrifice and service. Luke chapter 14, one of my favorite sections of scripture Jesus speaks to the masses who were following after him because he had done great miracles. He knew that they were following him simply because he had performed miracles. And he turns to them and he says this outlandish, just, just crazy statement to them. And he says, if you don't hate your father or your mother, your children, then you cannot be my disciple. 
And that idea of hating isn't to actually hate with violent intensity someone. It's to say, if you don't love me more than every other relationship that you have, you can't really be my disciple. You could say you like me and my teachings and want to be my follower, but unless you prioritize me first, you're not really a disciple of mine. You can't really learn what it means to, to, to have my life. Loving Jesus, following Jesus requires sacrifice. And then Jesus would go on in John 14, specifically verse 15, and he would say this, if you love me, if you're willing to sacrifice your life to follow after me, he says, obey my commandments. We're called to sacrifice our life for Jesus and we're called to serve him with that life. Now, loving Jesus requires sacrifice and service. Loving others requires sacrifice and service. Remember that Jesus said that the law and the prophets all hang on those two, love God and then love others. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says those, on those two laws hang all of the law and the prophets. And so loving Jesus, loving God requires sacrifice and service. Loving others requires sacrifice and service. And this is what Paul says, sacrificing what our flesh wants, pleasing ourselves for the purpose of serving others by bearing with their weakness and not being frustrated because we don't get our way. We don't get to do the thing that we know we have liberty in. No, man, if it's for the sake of someone else being built up in their faith, we sacrifice our life and we serve others. We only do what is good for building others up. Paul would say that in Ephesians chapter four, verse 29. We only do what is good for building others up. This is how we make disciples, loving others enough to sacrifice our lives and serve others. And those are the things that we're called to. If you wanted to boil down the purpose of our life in following after Jesus, it's to love God first, it's to love others, and it's to make disciples. Those are the three things that you can hang your hat on and go everything that the Bible talks about revolves around those things. Loving God, loving others, and making disciples of Jesus Christ. I'll finish with this idea. Love is a word that we, we throw around. It gets used a lot in our culture, and it gets used in the church a lot. And, and it becomes almost a reflex to use this word love, and it starts to get used perhaps a bit loosely and maybe even flippantly, meaning we don't always consider the depth of what it means to truly love someone. But consider for a moment that in relationship to discipleship, the Great Commission, making disciples of Jesus, but also in just general relationships, marriage, parenting, friendship, all those things, consider what love means. I'll give, you, I'll give you two ideas here. Love is the willingness to have less free time, less sleep, and a busier schedule in order to be faithful to what God has called you to be and to do as a spouse, as a parent, as a neighbor, as a servant of some kind. Love is the willingness to sacrifice what you find to be most important to you. Your time, your sleep, your privacy, any of those things. That stuff gets sacrificed. It gets put on the altar before the Lord so that you could serve someone else. Love is the willingness to make regular and costly sacrifices for the sake of relationship without asking for anything in return. 
or using the sacrifices that you've made to make someone else feel like they owe you something. We serve without expectation of anything in return. We sacrifice our lives knowing that that sacrifice of our life is a worship offering to the Lord. And as Paul would say in Romans 12, 1, it's reasonable for us to do that because Jesus gave his life for us.